What is up, internets? Welcome to the Devil's Advocate for Self-Defense podcast. I know it's been a minute since we've done one of these episodes. It's only because there's just so much divisiveness out there right now that I just didn't feel like being argumentative or even debating. But this show is by far the most popular show we do. Plus, it's also my favorite show. And coming up today, we have the person who's done this show the most, clearly one of my favorite guests, Malcolm Rivers. What's up, Malcolm? What's going on, everybody? Um, Just enjoying a little bit of debate and having a bit of a deviation from the modern landscape of divisiveness we're actually going to talk like we like each other yeah it's crazy that's the whole point of this show that's actually my favorite feedback from the show is everybody like oh that was fun i'm like that's the have you met me that's kind of my whole deal like i want everybody to have fun when they're doing this stuff so malcolm uh why don't you tell listeners a little bit about yourself just in case they don't know who you are even though you've been on the show the most and then we will get into what the show is for our new listeners Absolutely. Uh, My name is Malcolm Rivers. I started something called Not Me, Not Today Self-Defense. It's really focused on some of the elements that are less discussed in self-defense, like presentation, uh, forms of awareness that are a little bit less, you know, look for the places you can hide and a little bit more reading people and understanding situations. Um, Also, one-fourth of the Voltron that is Chiron training. Uh, with the old man of the lake, Rory Miller, and, you know, Tammy Yardman-Crackett and Paul DiRienzo. I always mispronounce his name. Anyway. um, It's weird. Me too. And even though I know how to say it, also where he's from, is it, I think it's Natick, but I always say Natick. I don't know why. Yeah, it's definitely Natick. um, And I think it's DiRienzo. Sorry, Paul. Anyway, uh, I love doing Randy's show just because it's enjoyable talking about stuff from different perspectives. And... I'm really focused on kind of growing the industry, not in terms of size, but in terms of maturity level, because Mm. there's a lot of conversations that just after the 15th time you've been a part of them or heard them, they're boring. So I feel like we should expand it more. And that's kind of what I'm here to do. Awesome. And so as, as I said before, Malcolm's been on the show lots of times. He's definitely my favorite uh, sparring partner when it comes to this thing. It's, I love his point of view. Don't forget to check out his Instagram, which is NMNT, at NMNT Self-Defense. Yep. Yeah. Yes. So check that out. Uh-huh. Give him a follow. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, please, uh, please keep going. But like real quick, um, and then also got a blog going. Uh, oh. There are links from the actual Instagram page to the blog. I won't bore you with the URL. Maybe I'll send it to Randy and you can put it underneath or something. Yeah, I definitely do that. And we'll do it at the end of the show. So if this is your first time joining us on the Devil's Advocate for Self-Defense, this is a pointed discussion show because the word debate just doesn't work anymore so this is a pointed discussion show in which myself uh, and my guest take opposite sides of a topic and then we debate or discuss the topic at hand when we're doing the free portion of the show the portion you're hearing right now we are totally just debating our own our, our points not our thoughts or feelings or experiences with this though those might pop up the show has a couple of rules. Number one, we start as friends and we leave as friends. And that's what Malcolm said earlier is like, we want to come here and have a discussion and grow. This is not about people getting upset. You can get that on your, any social media feed at any point in time. So we want something a little bit different here. Number two, there's 15 logic fallacies that we've sent ahead of time that the people aren't allowed to break. If you get caught in that fallacy, we're going to take a page out of Roy Miller's book, Conflict Communications. I highly recommend you check it out. And we're going to take a deep breath. 
apologize. Like, hey, sorry for using a slippery slope fallacy. Then for funsies, throw a compliment across the screen. Malcolm, as always, you look great. You're doing good today. And then we go back to the debate. We also secede our turn. So if I was on a roll, but I used a fallacy and Malcolm catches me in that fallacy, then I have to shut my word hole and then let Malcolm take over the debate. The debate is 20 minutes long. If you want our actual thoughts on the topic, then you have to jump over to Patreon at the $5 level. And we will talk a little bit more about the topic at hand, our actual thoughts, our feelings. This is a really interesting one, and it's very important for the time that we're in. The topic that we had decided to discuss today is, is solo training effective in a combat situation, correct? Uh, yeah, effective for self-defense, and we're narrowing it to physical solo training, uh, just meaning actually combative solo training, not necessarily like awareness or other yeah. things of that nature. That's correct. And I think uh, that the reason why we did that is this has been the biggest, this is what, this is my, I have this debate internally all the time is mm -hmm. as I've been re releasing online courses, they're all educational, but do we broach to self-defense training without a partner? And that's what we're going to talk about today. So mm -hmm. Malcolm, which side of the debate are you taking? I am taking the affirmative side. Solo training can be effective for physical preparation for self-defense. So, and as always, I'm taking the opposite side, which is, I believe, for the debate, for the discussion, that it is not effective for uh, real-life situations. So, Malcolm, if you're ready to go, we're going to put 20 minutes on the clock. Again, the debate is only 20 minutes. It's a soft 20 minutes, being if somebody's on a good point here, we're not going to cut them off. And don't forget, we'll find more about Malcolm out after the show, and Patreon will be our actual thoughts. If you want to know what the logic fallacies are, please jump to episode one. I discuss each one of them individually. All right, Malcolm, you have up to four minutes to have your opening statement, and then I will counter. Go. All right. So solo training for physical self-defense is an essential piece of self-defense or really combative training across the board in pretty much every enterprise. Going back hundreds, probably thousands of years, one of the primary ways of transmitting information prior to printing presses in the screens we're watching on right now were things like kata. Now people say, oh, well, kata's nonsense. Kata's shadow boxing and an easy way to transmit information. It is something that has been used in much more dangerous situations by people who fought a lot more hand to hand. And granted, they had limited options, but this was good enough that it passed things down that are hundreds of years old relatively effectively and that many people used in physical engagements where lives were at stake. So clearly, at least on some level, it has worked for people in much more dangerous circumstances than most of us find ourselves right now. Additionally, it is used in almost every combative enterprise in various forms or fashions. It is not perfect because nothing is perfect, but it is continually employed. Individual drills, whether it be wrestling, boxing, mixed martial arts, etc. Shadow boxing is one of my favorite examples because people continually use it. I've never been to an environment where someone didn't use it or thought it was complete nonsense thus far. It is just what it is. It is effective, but it is not holistic and it is not perfect. Additionally, pieces of solo training can be useful for individual sections of preparing for physical confrontation. For example, working a heavy bag. You can work a heavy bag by yourself to do power generation, to do structure, to work on any number of factors that contribute to your physical efficacy. And so to sum it all up, 
People have been using it in a lot more dangerous situations for hundreds of years, and clearly it has worked well enough because we have the information still, despite it being very old. Uh, people continually use it now for various elements and purposes, and there is no combative enterprise that I've come across thus far that does not have it incorporated in some form or fashion somewhere therein. Though it is not holistic and complete, it is definitely a relevant piece. All right, so I am taking the opposite side of this, and I, I can't uh, disagree with anything you said, and I agree. Um, that's why we're not talking just kata, like shadow boxing, active play. There is there is some benefits to it. Now, mm -hmm. the, the, the stance I'm going to take here is when we talk about it working combatively. So mm -hmm. I don't want to – so you mentioned it wasn't holistic, and I don't want to say only uh, if you're only solo training versus not solo training, but some of the negatives of solo training is, mm -hmm. number one, almost every person assumes they're doing something correctly if nobody is watching them. So if, if I was teaching a deadlift, for example, and I did, I'm like, oh, my deadlift's fine. And they're like, ah, your back is actually super rolled. You're going to get hurt. So the number one issue with solo training is without a watchful eye or somebody to help you, though we can, we can bridge this with a, like a Skype Zoom thing. But inside mm -hmm. this debate, people usually assume competence unless there's some other underlying trauma. Mm -hmm. And assuming competence is going to give you a false sense of security when you come to a real life situation. Mm -hmm. The next thing I think that's really important when it comes to this is it's very hard to get your stress levels and the response levels high enough on solo training without a second person feeding you that. So if you walk into a mm -hmm. regular sit, like I can give a perfect example is anecdotal. I just started running with my friend who's a former Muay Thai captain and a, he got here on a sprinting scholarship. So the guy's not slow. <laughs> And I thought I was in okay shape when I started and he, without him pushing me, cause I was running myself, I was doing my own stuff at my own pace. I thought it was fine. But the mm -hmm. second I saw what the pace was supposed to look like, uh, I'm not, I was in horrible shape. I was dying. It was brutal. So I think that the not having that, that feedback loop is, is detrimental, mm -hmm. but also without getting your body spiked to the level of somebody pushing you, you're going to get a false sense of security in your rhythm and timing because it hasn't been tested against mm -hmm. somebody else or pressure tested against a working opponent. And then that just brings up a whole bunch of things, timing, targeting, stress management, all these things that I don't really think can be accomplished in solo training. Malcolm. Fantastic points, first of all. Um, so I wanna take a couple of them. Timing, so one of the things that's relevant for differentiation is timing in self-defense context and timing in combative sportive context, right? Mm -hmm. Timing in combative sportive context has a lot of rules and elements depending on your style, if you're a counter puncher, whatever. Timing in self-defense context, I would argue, can be somewhat simplified down to if you can hit the guy and you need to hit the guy, hit the guy as fast and as hard and as much as you can. And so I think the nature of self-defense as counter ambush and trying to regain the initiative makes timing albeit still a factor, but less of a factor and in a slightly different way. I, can see I think that. the other issue of the feedback loop, I think is fair. I think that the feedback loop is limited, but still exists. For example, if I'm hitting a heavy bag and I horribly place my wrist set up and I really, really badly bend my wrist, I mean, maybe I don't do any serious damage, but obviously it doesn't feel good. In some regards, there are elements of solo training that can tell you whether or not you're doing something right based on, is do, does it hurt? 
does it hurt in ways it shouldn't? Um, how much do I feel like there's there's indentation on the bag or how much the bag is the bag moving or what have you? Um, and I think that that can give a small version of a feedback loop that in some ways is superior because the bag has, I don't have to worry as much about training flaws of a power nature. I'm not saying there's all kinds of training flaws in heavy bag work, but I don't have to worry about breaking the bag all that often. Unless I'm a mutant, chances are I'm not going to break the bag. So I'm, a, I'm able to let things off the leash in terms of power more than I can with a human, because if I'm doing an effective job fast and hard with a human and they don't break, I either did it wrong or I wasn't trying. The other issue of, of adrenal stress is absolutely relevant, but I would argue that adrenal stress is hard to create under any of these circumstances. And so it's kind of like a bad versus worse type of situation because if I'm if I'm looking for the realistic adrenal response of a combative surprise ambush environment, it is very hard to replicate that anywhere. It's very difficult to do. I'm out of the slow buildup. But even if I'm surprised in class, unless somebody drives to my house and hops out as I'm walking out the door, it's kind of hard to simulate that anyway. And so to me, the difference between the adrenal stress that you can produce by yourself if you are good at mentally manipulating yourself or if you employ elements like music or if you employ even stuff like um, the I forget what they're called the bobblehead bags that bounce back and forth they got the pole yeah, uh, even if I do something where I jerry rig a setup like that to tie to something so that eventually it lets go and it hits me I've got a little tiny bit of adrenal stress and it's not nearly as good as a partner but in some regards either way I'm not going to get it so it's not a mood point I think it's just less of a factor potentially so I disagree slightly. I would rather get as close to it as I can rather than just disregard it entirely. So I still think that working with somebody is there. There's another point that I wanted to bring up, and this is not brought up often, but I've been uh, talking about it a lot more, which is there's a lot more to a fight than the opponent and your stress level, right? There's things mm -hmm. like uh, feeling constant pressure. There's stuff like body odor, uh, hearing somebody breathing on you. These, but seriously, these are factors that people don't consider. You're right. You're and right. I think we, arguably speaking, when we're trying to get somebody ready for a, a self-defense situation, we want to give them as much evidence, as much information as possible, what it's going to feel like. You're going to get that from a bad training partner. You're going to get that from somebody who doesn't shower before they come to class. Like I remember when I was back in the day before I got the old uh, noggin hurt when I was competing, uh, there was no washing your gi rules. And so nobody did just to mess with everybody until the rules had to come in because that's how rules start is until people break it. So I think there's a lot of visceral factors like, yeah, you might be good at doing what you're doing on a, on a dummy, but what if your partner's sweaty or, or, or there's blood on them or there's, there's so many things because I, and I, I'm not against solo training, but I really believe that solo training is good for like the you internal mm -hmm. stuff, but the external stuff, I can't be replicated by alone. And even if it's poorly replicated with a partner, it's still closer to reality than nothing at all. That makes sense. And all of those things are true. I think where we might find difference in terms of the levels of value of solo training is how much of the internal you stuff matters for mm. engagement. For me, the internal use stuff is probably 75%. This is okay. a rough estimate. Don't hold me to the numbers, obviously. Sure. But the use stuff is arguably much more important because if you have a strong visualization game, you can, you can 
mimic some of these things. For example, even if you've never trained with another person in your life, someone has breathed on you at some point. You've been near someone, you've smelled things that are terrible. And if you want to get gross and creative, then I take, uh, I named him Chad. I take Chad (laughs) over here and I put a, my, my stinky ghee that I haven't washed and I left in the garbage for a week on him. Now I've got the smell. I've got the nice trash human smell. Um, I've also can replicate some of the blood, the, the, the sweat. I can add in these factors. All I need is a, all I don't have is a moving body. Mm-hmm. And so I can get, if I'm, if I can visualize or maybe not visualize is the wrong word. If I can mentally, if I can mentally put together a scene in my mind well enough, I might be able to internally replicate those factors, which may in some regards produce an adrenal response, which is arguably part of the reason that people get scared in horror movies. If you sit in a theater and you see people jump, they know it's fake. There's no one there, but they, in, they have closed off their minds to the rest of the surroundings just to that screen. So theoretically, if I'm playing some horrible sounds of somebody being murdered in the background as I engage in my solo training, it's possible that I can mimic some of these factors to a degree. And that's the real punchline is to a degree for all of it. But I think where we might differ is at two points. One is how much stuff is mostly internal. Mm-hmm. And two is uh, how close we can realistically get with any training to what we're trying to simulate. Sure. So I think on the internal versus external, I think I'd say 50-50. I, I see what you're saying. I don't agree 100%, but only, mm-hmm. and not even just for the debate. We'll talk about this in the, on the, um, the Patreon. But, uh, uh, but I, I see what you're saying, and that makes sense. So I'm going to, uh, I'm gonna, it's not a logic fallacy, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of point it out a little bit. So you okay. are saying what you could do, but that's not what the average people do on solo training. So yes, you could add a stinky gee, but who does that? Right. Where in training with a partner, that stuff's given for free. Right. It's automatically showers. Sure. But then you're still still getting the pressure. You're still getting the breathing. All that's given for free where you need to be creative in your solo training to have that. So I'm not saying that people don't do it, but on mass, like nobody's putting this, not less people are putting this thinking on. And while I don't disagree with you, you can replicate that. Like, I don't know people playing horror music when they're shadow box and they're playing like top 40 to get their heart rate (laughs) up. Right. So yes, I agree. I I seriously say, but I don't, I think that's a you thing. I don't think that's a, that applies directly to this conversation. It could. That that might be a me thing, but then it begs the question, are we talking possibilities or are we talking realities? Because if we're talking possibilities, obviously the possibilities are endless in some regards. You could legit go down to a parking lot by yourself at night, playing scary music with a a focus mitt and really simulate some of the circumstances. And you could actually realistically simulate all of those circumstances that sometimes are hard to simulate with a partner because somebody's not willing to go out because it's raining and it's dark and it's two in the morning and they're scared and play in the parking lot and feel the gravel underneath their shoes and the car against their back or what have you. So if, if it's what people realistically do, I can narrow it to that. Um, so then let me, let me adjust the argument for what people realistically do, because what, that's, that's not, a reason. Not realistically, but what people generally do when they think solo training, right? Yeah. So what people generally do when they think solo training. So it could be argued that one of the things that makes traditional martial artists really, really good 
is that they zero in on what they're doing and they're excellent at it and they don't pretend they're doing anything else. And so there's a value to that level of precision and solo training, while it can't perfectly give me the clarity around whether or not my technique is good coming from an outside instructor, it doesn't take an instructor for me to see that I'm able to send the heavy bag swinging relatively well and that I'm not developing any discomfort in my shoulders or my arms. Uh, I can do structure tests. I can do a number of things, even if, and this is something that's something, you know, Cassius Clay, not Cassius Clay, excuse me, Muhammad Ali, he was yeah, Cassius Clay at the time. Yeah, yeah fair enough. Yeah, um, took a picture of him shadow boxing underwater. And so there, there is, even though that was kind of a staged nonsense picture and he didn't it's really- It's iconic now though. It's, like, it's iconic, it's kind of nonsense though. Um, but he <laughs> did, but there have been ways that people have exhibited creativity during solo training that has made their physical movements extremely precise. And if you look at like the amount of boxing, for example, that is road work and shadow boxing, oh, yeah. uh, speed bag work, heavy bag work, all of that is solo training in some regard, right? Sure. Most of the time, it's just you working with yourself. And sparring is relatively limited because the goal is, A, decrease the mileage. You just don't want to get hurt all that often. Mm -hmm. And then, B, to sharpen the skill. So I would argue that solo training is better at sharpening, its sharpening skill as it's generally used. But additionally, and this is arguably more important, it's better at decreasing the mileage because if I'm doing amazing partner training and I get injured because my partner is doing a good job mimicking real pressure, I'm out for three months. Even if I hadn't trained with my partner for those, even if um, I solo trained for those three months, those three months would be more beneficial than if I get injured. Now, I'm not saying I don't wanna create a fallacy where we're pretending everybody gets injured, but it does, it does minimize the hesitation based on injury and the limitation based on potential injury to a degree. Sure. I would argue using the same model though, that no coach would ever put a fighter in the ring only doing solo training. So there, is, there would never happen. There would never, I don't, I just don't think it would because again, there's, there's just something to be said about feeling the pressure of the person, the unpredictability. And I can't, I can't stress enough that I firmly believe people overestimate themselves all the time. And when they do the solo training is, is the, is the best way to pump your tires to be like, I'm awesome until real stress comes. And I've seen people opt out of, and this, so I'm going way extreme on the other side of this, but I've seen people opt out of um, spa, sparring, play, wrestle scenarios for the reason you said, which is, oh, I don't want to get hurt for three weeks. And they believe that the solo training is all they need. Now, mm. this comes in two forms and we can talk about more later. And form number one is the person doesn't want to really work hard, but they want to feel like they're working. And form number two is person was a hardcore hardcore hard fighter when he was younger and it's like i don't need that crap anymore because i feel like i've already tested myself there mm. so it's interesting to me because as a person who was very big on the uh the i would say rory's mentality of the things you've gained from sparring don't outweigh the things you lose from sparring i actually disagree with that almost 100 now because i have been sparring again and I am the classic case of overestimating myself. Like, oh, I'm so good. I've done all this stuff. Look how good I am with these drills. And then I fell apart. Like the second time I was like, ooh, what's this? I'm like, ah. So I, I just, I don't think that solo trading is a great way to jump. And that's kind of what we're talking about is to jump into combative world. You need, I'm not, and I guess, honestly, if it could be remove solo training or remove partner training, I would remove solo training and only train partners. I think it'd be the best way for you to get uh, proficient 
in this. And that's what I always tell people like, ready, how to learn how to fight. I'm like, start a fight club in your backyard for three weeks and come talk to me. Right. Cause there's so many things you're to learn how to take a punch, how to move, what's going to happen. Malcolm. Fair points. I think the, there's an additional piece to that, which is availability. Sure. It's uh, you know, the old adage about weapons, the best weapon that the best weapon in existence is the weapon you have. Mm-hmm. I, no matter we're in the middle of a pandemic, right? I, might be able to do training on occasions with some people after I take my temperature and do all the things. Solo training is available to me no matter where I am or what I'm doing and is going to increase the myelination and and strengthen the pathways in terms of the physical movement part. Now, it obviously limits the amount that I deal with the resistance and the pressure, but if we consider how in many regards, real world ambush violence occurs, I'm not worried in, again, this is sure. for the sake of argument, I'm yeah, 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 yeah. my perspective as a human. Um, I'm not worried about what the other guy's gonna do because my job is to break everything that I come into contact with as much as possible. And I am more effective at that the more I myelinate my pathways between the movements and what I'm aiming to do. So I can strengthen my movements a significant amount. And he, if he is ambushing me and I'm able to regain, if he's ambushing me and I'm just ambushed and I can't get it together, then it's a moot point. Right. If he's ambushing me and I'm able to regain the initiative, there isn't as much of the back and forth repartee element that is necessary in partner training for both people to get value out of it. So in some regards in partner training, unless one person is going to tr- practice getting their ass beat the whole time, there's going to have to be sort of the ping pong effect. Whereas if I am training, obviously, to strengthen myself, I want to minimize the ping pong effect. And the ping pong effect is frequently not a piece of uh, realistic ambush violence. Beautiful. That is the end of our 20 minutes. And I, I was a little bit over, but I wanted that point to get out there. So appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. If you like this conversation, please join us over on Patreon. I have a lot of things I want to talk about with Malcolm because like most of these topics, I don't think one side is, is superior to other. Uh, in, it is a fallacy to believe it's called the middle fallacy, to believe everything's in the middle. But uh, most of it usually is in the middle. We're doing these conversations. So Malcolm, thank you so much for being on the show. As always, why don't you tell the people where they can find your blog and all that stuff right now? Okay, so um, we are on Instagram at NMNT. That is not me, not today. Uh, uh, training, excuse me, NMNT underscore training. And that links you to the blog, which is a blog spot. I won't bore you to death with the URL. Also doing uh, stuff with Chiron and we've got a Patreon up. So search for Rory Miller's Chiron Training on Facebook. We're also on Instagram and we've got the Patreon going as well. And that's pretty much it. Awesome. Thank you everyone for joining us on another Devil's Advocate for Self-Defense. I have four of these scheduled in the book. So this isn't going to be one and done. We have a bunch coming out, but we will be doing the other shows as you can see behind me here. So we have Devil's Advocate, we have WTF, and we have Randy King Live with. We're going to have Malcolm on a WTF as well. So look for that coming out soon. Again, more Devil's Advocate coming out. I know this is the show that you like. One more time so everybody knows what's going on. 
the Randy King Live podcast channel is no longer in the business of looking for famous people to talk to. Uh, the goal of the channel now is to talk to people who've experienced real violence that are not necessarily self-defense instructors or martial artists. While we'll still have them on the debate show, when we're doing these conversations, there's already so many great shows that are bringing out high-level guests. Look at Managing Violence with Joe Saunders. I highly recommend. But I'm not interested in talking to people with polished conversations about violence anymore. I'm really interested in talking to people that have experienced it. It's gritty and we can we can walk through it kind of going with my realities of violence brand. So expect in the future people you might not expect on the show because just because they're not an expert in the field doesn't mean they don't have a snapshot of violence. And I think that conversation needs to be had. Don't forget to join us on Patreon and we're going over there right now.